Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Marianne Pina. This is Joe Frodsham, and we have a terrific guest today. I'm really excited to dive into this. Uh, Ashley Ridgeway, Washington. Ashley, we've known Ashley for, gosh, about four years, four and a half years. Met Ashley when she was a leader at Christus Health, where she was for over seven years in progressively larger leadership roles there in human resources. Uh, but she has a rich background. I mean, not only was she a leader at Christus Health, but in the spare time was starting businesses, coaching executives, uh, Ajay Enterprises, kind of leading that as an LLC on the side where they did human capital and culture consulting. She also did a nonprofit called Hoop Shots for Kids, all while doing adjunct faculty work at University of Texas at Arlington, while also being a great person in the community in so many other ways. So I don't know if there's something she hasn't done. I mean, especially as you reach back beyond that. Before that, she was in legal practice, and I'll let her kind of talk through that because she does indeed have a law degree. <laughs> She's from went to Florida A&M University, where she got a master's degree in agriculture, business, and economics, and a juris doctorate, a law degree uh, from Florida A&M. And then on the side, she went off and got a master's degree in human resource management from Rawlings College. So she is in so many ways, a renaissance person, truly an entrepreneur who's had a, a career of impact and she's just getting going. So welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much. No pressure at all, Joe. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so glad you're joining us today, Ashley. You know, before we get to your career journey, let's talk a little bit more about you and your personal journey. Tell me, where's your family from? Where did you grow up? And how did that have an impact in your life? Absolutely. So I grew up in Paducah, Kentucky, a small town in western Kentucky, right between real towns called uh, Monkey's Eyebrow and Possum Trot. No lie. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a movie a script. Small yeah. place. Many people know it now because it sits about 15 miles away from Mayfield, Kentucky, which was recently impacted by the terrible tornadoes. But small mm -hmm. town upbringing, about 20,000 people. Um Raised by a mom and a dad who were both working folks. My mother was in education. And so she insisted on um, all things education-based. She said often, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And so she kept us busy with both um, school-related things, but lots of things in the community. She made you try everything once. So you name it, 4-H, speech and debate, basketball, <laughs> tried it all. Um, and... Um, also grew up um, in the Boys and Girls Club, which was a pivotal a pivotal um, influence on my life. My grandfather founded our Boys and Girls Club in our town. He was um, the founder of the first integrated Boys and Girls Club in America, right in Paducah, Kentucky. Wow. wow. What year was that? Oh, my gosh. I am not sure, but it was in like the 1940s or 50s when he started it okay. um, and, and started it as what he called... Um, a smaller club, I think he called it the Dust Club, which was there were some young men in the community who were getting in trouble. And back then he was an assistant to the juvenile officer of the town. And the juvenile officer said, hey, these kids are going to go to juvenile. I need you to do something with them. And so he started convening them in the basement of the courthouse and giving them things to do and helping them to figure out positive ways to rechannel their energy it grew from there. He became ultimately the first African-American juvenile officer in our town and founded the Boys and Girls Club. And his footprint was um, 
indelible on my life. And we'll talk probably more about him later. But um, father was also a great influence. He was a serial entrepreneur as well, owned a roofing company for 30 years, made me his first bookkeeper. And <laughs> That's so, cool. Yeah. So that was that was my upbringing with lots of family, cousins and so on and so forth. Thank you for sharing. So as a kid, we all dream of what we're going to be when we grow up. What 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 was your dream? <laughs> So initially, I wanted to be an artist, and I tell the story quite often. As a little girl, I grew up in Missionary Baptist Church, and we went every day. So on Sundays, I would sit on the pew next to my grandmother, and I would draw on the on the program. One Sunday, I opened the front cover of a Baptist hymnal, and I drew in it. Uh-oh. You all know how, how this story Uh-oh. goes, right? So I'm watching out of the choir stand, spanks me. Then she brings me back into the church, and I am boohooing. And she's like, you better not cry and embarrass me further. And the pastor was talking about Deborah in the Bible. She's the only female judge mentioned in the Bible. And in my brain, I was probably seven or eight. I'm like, yep, that's what I'm doing in my life. She's a boss. She's in charge. She's telling people what to do. This is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And that is how I got to I was going to be an attorney. I was focused on that from that day forward. What a cool kind of epiphany moment. You knew where you were when sort of yes. thing. And right after a whooping too, I guess, <laughs> I, I guess that's kind of makes you a little humble and then you're back in, in church and getting a little revelation. Yes. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be able to relate to that. Um, you know, think, thinking about people that influenced you in your life, you meant briefly mentioned your grandpa and your dad, Um, Do you want to elaborate on that or anyone else that has been a major influence on you? So I would say certainly my mother and father. My mother is um, very education focused, very humble, very um, focused on giving back to the community, which I got from her. My father is too, but more than that, he was very daring entrepreneurial he believed in trying things new things exploring new things not being afraid to fail um and he instilled that in me I think the wisest person that I've ever known though was my grandfather and his wisdom was not one that was telling it was showing and so he showed you he modeled how to be how to approach problems how to um solve problems how to meet people halfway and, and find common ground one of the most profound things he's ever told me was that sometimes you get the bear sometimes the bear gets you and he believed that you should have a short you know champions have short memories sometimes you're going to win sometimes you're going to lose but you got to get up dust yourself off and move forward I'm going to have to write that one down. Champions have short memories. Champions like have short memories. No, I, I like that. And uh, I completely agree. We, we love sports analogies, and we, we just got to be careful. We don't have a whole show on sports. Otherwise, we really would. <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, uh, you throw an interception, you got to get back out there and throw it again. All right? Absolutely. And uh, it's it's how many times you get back up, as they say. Well, that's so it sounds like you had a great childhood. It, but at one point, you migrated from Paducah which I've been to, by the way, oh, Kentucky, wow. <laughs> uh, to Florida. How'd yes. that happen? When'd that happen? So despite having a wonderful childhood that I appreciate now, I did not appreciate it then. And I also remember thinking as a kid, how in the H-E double hockey sticks did I end up in this small podunk town, right? I wanted to be a big city girl. And I was an avid reader, so I would read all these romance novels and books about these metropolitan women and cities. And I was like, I'm doing that with my life. Um, But again, my parents were practical. We were working everyday people. And they said, look, we can't afford to send you to school out of state. You got to get scholarships. And so I beat the pavement and I got several scholarships in state, 
but one full scholarship through the 1890 Land Grant Institution, USDA 1890 Land Grant Scholar to Florida A&M University. I knew I wanted to go to HBCU. I had not been in a lot of holy black spaces. And so it was a perfect marriage of that. So I packed up and went to Tallahassee for college. Well, Way t- to go. Yeah. Tell us about that. I mean, it, it, there, you really want to go to HBCU. Um, why, what was it about your experience that said that's the experience you wanted to have? Sure. So here's the reality. I grew up from a fairly well-respected family in a small community that, you know, quite frankly, respected me because of who my grandfather was and who my mother was in the community, but there were still lots of race issues. I still remember the first time I was called the N-word. I still remember, you know, very often being the only person of color in the spaces that were IP and AP and, and, you know, having my mother having to go to the school and challenge the gifted and talented program to say, you know, I, I want, I don't need to see the names, but I want to see her scores compared to others and them having to disclose that. And before they did saying, Oh, we'll just put her in. So those things really happened. And so there, there comes a point, I think in most people of color's lives when they've kind of gone through that way, that they're thinking, is this everybody's experience? Like, is is black excellence a thing in a broad sense? And as I visited colleges and saw HBCUs, I realized it was a thing, and I wanted to be a part of it. Very cool, and what a great response, right? Yeah. I love that productive response. Well, let's talk about your career then. Sure. Let's, let's start there. I mean, uh, you know, high school, you, you hit the pavement, as you said. You started to look at different options. You were targeting HBCU. 1890 land grant, there was money involved that got you to Florida A&M. Sure. To Central Florida, here I come, right? Absolutely. Uh, how, did you know what you wanted to do when you entered college? And tell us about your college experience. Sure. So I always wanted to be an attorney in my brain. I also knew that there was less money available for rural people to be political science majors. And so what I figured out is that agricultural business was essentially a business and economics degree with some agricultural undertones, which fit really well with my historical experience. FAMU was transformative for me. It helped me to see what was possible in a way that was different than in books. I saw black accountants and CEOs and CFOs and theologians and scholars and, and everyone in my space was smart and black and about being black and about being proud to be black. And the experience was more than just education. It was how to navigate the corporate environment as a person of color. It changed my trajectory. And so that experience was beautiful. Um, I, I, along the way, had some bumps. I had a baby as a sophomore. Um, But it was that same community of support, that same village that allowed me to take a six month old baby back to Florida A&M University and have professors hold my baby while I'm taking a test or watch my kiddo when I had some extracurricular thing to do. It was a community that I will forever be indebted to. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can definitely relate. You're seeing him. Um, (laughs) I think that's important. Being part of that community that understands and that is supportive is very important. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and, and, the, and the fact that you said, okay, my daughter, we're going doing this together, yeah. right? So she's really been your partner through so much of this. Yes. So I refer to her. She's my, my rock, but she also is my broke best friend. And I tell people all the time we grew up together. Um, but ultimately, she was really the thing that saved my life because I was a very smart 
also very hot-headed and bullish young lady that was pretty self-serving, she gave me the why. I was like, I can't screw this up any more than I have. I got to make this thing right. So she really helped me to steer my life in, a, in the right direction quickly. It's funny how kids do that to you, don't they? Yeah, They, they sure. change everything and reframe the whole world for you, that's for sure. And uh, it just the way you talked about her, I could tell there's just a lot of history there. Yeah. And, you know, it goes deep as well it should. All right, so so you got, made a lot of sense. Uh, you know, hey, political science, I can get more money if I do this economics, agricultural economics degree. Makes sense. Did you go right into law school or kind of what was your trajectory after that? No, so after that, I went to work for the USDA. Okay. And then shortly after that in rural housing where I really helped rural Americans get home loans. After that, I spent a couple of years working at Southwest Georgia Agricultural Farm Credit. Um, which is a government-sponsored kind of company. And then I got to be, I guess, about 25 and thought I need to quit playing and go to law school. So I applied to law school, let my leaders at my company know that's what I was going to do. I got into two law schools, and I ultimately made the decision to go to FAMU College of Law because I really felt serious about that community of support. I knew law school was probably the hardest thing I'd ever do. I had a three-year-old or two-year-old at that time. And so I, I made the decision to choose that over Florida State because I felt like it was a better cultural fit. Um, and then I went to law school. Wow. What kind of law? I mean, you know, ultimately you went to law school. I'm sure there's stories we could talk about that. But, it, you know, seven years old in church after a whooping. And here you are literally 18 years later living that, right? You're in law school. Uh, did you enjoy it? And what, what kind of what aspects of law? Did you practice when, upon graduation? Sure. So I will tell you, I learned very quickly that I had was very passionate about the law, but I hated the practice of it. And I figured that out about my second year in law school. But because I'm kind of a chronic overachiever, there was no way I was giving up, right? I was going to get that law degree. I ultimately practiced commercial litigation for a small plaintiff's firm. Um, we did defamation, torturous interference. We did some um, t- tobacco progeny cases, so tobacco tobacco mass um, torts. And then we also did torturous interference with business practice. And I was never passionate about it. That's just the truth. I was good at it. I made great money, but I worked too many hours. I was paying someone to do pretty much everything for my kiddo because I didn't have time. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't passionate about it. This makes me think about so many people that go into a career field because they think it's the right thing for them to do, but then they get into it and they realize it's not the right fit. So what would you tell the audience, um, those that are listening, that are you know thinking about going into law, what would you say to them? So I'd say a couple of things. I think anything you think about trying that requires additional investment, you really need to do an ROI analysis. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but you need to look at how much time it's going to take you to do it, how much income you're going to lose while you're doing it, and how much it's going to cost you, and then understand what the upside of that is. I'd say go shadow somebody. Call a local firm and say, I want to come work for free for two weeks, a week. Because you need to understand what that journey really looks like. Ideally, a lawyer was a good thing. I'm thinking Claire Huxtable guys, right? And in my black community, there are about four honorable, you know, professions you could have. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, and, you know, a teacher, right? That was it. And so I didn't think beyond that. I didn't I didn't think about things like HR. And so do some discovery. The world is such now that there are opportunities to be have some immersive experiences. I would encourage people to to step into an immersive experience before they make that kind of shift. 
That's excellent. I agree. I yeah. do mean that. It's funny, you know, you, you talk about a child in, high, in college. Now, this is also a parallel path. We got two sons that are applying to law school as we speak. <laughs> so I, I'm going to ask them uh, on the side if they've had that immersive experience and probably encourage them to do that. But, you know, so many people do find themselves in that situation, right? Late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, and I don't like what I do. What did you do about that? How did how did you shift gears and how did you work your way out of that? So I am never afraid to try something new. Other than drugs, I'll try anything once, right? <laughs> Crime and drugs are off limit, but everything else I'll try once. And so what I started to do, and, and really what happened is I had a mentor, which is why mentorship is so important, who said, what are you passionate about? What makes you excited? And what I found is that it was meeting people where they were and helping them to get to where they were going. And when I think back on it, and I tell people this all the time, I've had this chronic FOMO my entire life, fear missing out. It is not just my own fear. It is my fear for people around me. So I've always been a person who wanted to connect people to the ideas, the skills, the resources that they need to get what they want. And that was the passion that I had all along. I thought that law was the pathway forward. It wasn't. But the passion never changed. So when people tune into their passions and figure out how to then monetize those passions, that is where they will find the magic. And that's what I did. So tell us how you did. I love monetizing passions, tapping into it, getting mentorship, doing immersive experience. There's a lot of already nuggets that I've got. How did you actually do that? You were practicing law. Where'd you go? So I was practicing law and then I got married. Some of this was God, I'll be honest. And some of this I wasn't smart enough to figure out myself. <laughs> but um, I was practicing law. I got married. At the time, my ex-husband was head men's basketball coach at Grambling State University. And I wanted to have a baby. And so I said, I don't want to practice in Louisiana. I want to go. And I was a legal auditor for Grambling State University. And literally about two weeks into my tenure there, their EEO coordinator walked off the job. I mean, like went to lunch and never came back. And I had become friends with the VP of HR. And she said, you're the only practicing attorney in the building. We have three charges of discrimination that have to be responded to this week. Can you help? And because I'll try anything once, <laughs> that's not <laughs> drugs or alcohol, I mean, drugs or crime. I said, sure. I've got a couple friends. I did a little bit of labor and employment back in the day. And that's how HR got started. I did that. And then it became an ancillary responsibility. And then I took on personal uh, grievances. And then I took on policy and procedure. And before I knew it, my job was probably 70-30. And then I left there because in basketball, folks get fired. And I um, came back and started my own firm because I'm a glutton for punishment and I needed to win at being an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what I found is that um, my passion led me again back to the HR side. I looked up two years later and my entire book of business was not practice. It was business consulting for small businesses that were hitting these federal trigger numbers and needed help. Yeah, and there's a lot of help still needed for those triggered. And and the the you know, honestly the compliance mark, you know, environment and regulatory environment is more complex than ever. Sure. You know, with COVID and everything else. So I'm sure you can keep busy doing that stuff. That is so you really migrate. You started, hey, you jumped on an opportunity mm -hmm. and instead of saying no way, Jose, you said, Why not? Yeah. Right? And did you love it? Did you enjoy it? What did you enjoy about it? So I enjoyed, I did enjoy it. But more than that, what I really enjoyed was helping people to understand how to engage and motivate others. Because when we talk about at work, it's not business at all. All business is personal. So how do you appeal to inspire and then empower people with the tools that they need to do the job you've asked them to do? That was magic to me. 
And it still is, right? How do I understand what my people need to not only feel like they can come to work and do a good job, but that they are prepared to do that good job and that they understand clearly how what they do today informs this bigger strategy that is the organizational strategy. That was wonderful for me. You know, you, you're what I love about some lawyers, but not most, if I can be honest, is you have a business <laughs> lens. It's not law for the sake of law. Yeah. And it's like business first, uh, everything else is secondary. The people, the strategy, the mission, the legal pieces, that's all part of serving, serving something larger. And that's what I, it's kind of the resonating, one of the resonating themes I hear from you, quite honestly. So let's talk about HR. You sure. moved into human resources. As you know, there's, it's a broad umbrella, training, OD, you know, generalist activity, employee relations. Where, how have you carved a career in human resources and what do you enjoy most and least about the work you do in HR? Sure. So I would say my sweet spot is are three things. Training and development. I love it. It's my jam. I'm good at it. And I help really crystallize and bring um, sometimes complex concepts into digestible bites, which is what you want. Training that sticks. The second space that I would say is really being a trusted partner, particularly to executives. I think many times executives are placed in a position where they should know all things. And people are, are generally the space they know the least about. But they're charged with so much of the people impact, right? And so being walking side by side with the executive in, in terms of helping them to navigate the people and culture strategy and how it aligns with the business strategy. And then the third thing is DE&I because I'm passionate about it. And I think it is a business imperative. I think if leveraged properly, it's not only the moral thing to do, it's the business savvy thing to do. And so those are the things I'm most passionate about. The thing that I like least in HR is compensation. The people who love it are weird and we need them in the world. <laughs> but I don't want to be one of those folks. <laughs> and there's a lot of complexity, especially when you yes. get to LTI stuff and exec yes. comp and all the other derivatives and derivations, as you know. It's woo, yes. tax implications. Have fun with that. I want no parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want my check to hit the bank. Yes. Um, what do you enjoy most and least about your work, though? I mean, uh, it sounds like least, not compensation. What do you enjoy most and and that you want to continue to do more of? I enjoy most when I work with a client or an organization who really wants to get culture right, who really is trying to figure out how to create an environment where people can come to work, show up authentically, and do phenomenal work. That is wonderful. When you see an associate figure out what their passion is and what they're good at, and then shoot off like a rocket, it almost brings tears to my eyes because that's what it's about. We talk about business, but the reality is, is that profitability comes from really motivated people who do their thing well. That is what drives these strategies. And the more organizations figure that out and invest in the people who execute on those strategies every day, the better you will see companies perform. Companies that get that give me the warm fuzzies, and I love working with them. I, I hear you You love people and possibilities. Mm -hmm. and, and creating an environment, culture, that catalyzes people and possibilities. Absolutely. And, and if we get too far beyond that and get two numbers or spreadsheet, and if you do all that at compliance and it doesn't support and enable that, then you're going to take away the juice. For real. 
Absolutely. You know what I love? I, I love your level of self-awareness and passion for just wanting to help other individuals. And in the process of that, because of your business mindset, you're able to have an ROI with it, right? Sure. Um, you know, with your level of career success, obviously we've all experienced some level of challenge or unfairness throughout life, right? What would you say has been a challenge for you that you've been able to overcome? Sure. I mean, so here's the thing. I am who I am. I am fairly bold. I am fairly candid. So what you see with me is what you get. And that's not always palatable for everyone. There, there is challenge sometimes in being a confident woman of color in a position of power. And there is also um, many times the assumption that I'm working for someone who's sitting next to me. I can't tell you how many times I'd have an assistant sitting in a meeting and they would be talking to my assistant who might be a white male who they thought was my boss. And so what I've come to understand is that I don't take that personally. I, I live by the four agreements. I love that book and I live by it. I don't take anything personally. What I do is use that as an opportunity to educate. Um, I also have come to be comfortable with the fact that I'm not for everybody. And so I have been um, more intentional about selecting clients and opportunities that really align with who I am and what they and, and we're in alignment about where they want to go because there is not always an appetite for people like me and I'm okay with that, that yeah sense. and that level of confidence happens over time yeah. right um, and I, I I do see that maturation and that comfort level which is terrific uh, and so it really is how do you frame situations how do you frame unfairness how do you use it as an opportunity to educate and elevate and move it along Right? I think that's a really, really positive. It's um, great. So where are you going to go next? I mean, I, what I hear is a couple of things. People, possibilities, entrepreneurism, impact, scale. Um, I hear all of that in your story, right? Um, what do you see yourself doing more of over the next 10 or 15 years of your life and career? So more entrepreneurial pursuits for sure. I, I love the idea of being inside organizations. I think there is opportunity to make magic happen. But I really do feel like there are opportunities for me to touch multiple organizations in a strategic way to really share with them how they can galvanize their talent. This whole notion of people and possibilities is really what I'm all about, right? And so how do they galvanize that? How do they do that with restricted resources? How do they do that when there's only 20 people? How do they scale that when they go from 20 people to 500 people, right? And so more of that, I'm really passionate about empowerment, particularly empowering women and women of color. And so I really like to explore how I can be impactful in that space. Um, but I will tell you, the one thing that I have learned about all the failures and successes that I've had, and there have been too many to tell, is that if you want to make God laugh, you can tell him what you're doing next. And so I really do pursue seasons. I really do pursue impact. And so the question is not who, when, what title, how much money it's going to be. Where am I going to make impact next? And how long will that season last? And when that season elapses, where will I go and make impact next? You know, I, I love it's It's what I often call career improvisation. Right. Uh, I love, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to actually plagiarize that, that quote, as far as if you want to make God laugh, just tell him what you're going to do. Because, because you're right. I mean, we, the best laid plans kind of fall apart. And, and uh, especially in careers, the careers nowadays, most organizations are flat. They're in some level of volatility and turbulence. So if we want a predictable path over the next 20 years, we're probably not going to have it. It's just not how it rolls now. You got to be always developing, knowing what you love to do, and being willing to be adaptive, not rigid. 
and uh, have a mission and purpose in mind. I think that's absolutely true. So I love how you've operationalized that and you plan to do that going forward. Let's leave this with, you know, as our listeners, um, what advice would you give them? You know, you've got a complement of experiences and accomplishments. You know, uh, they're sitting here, they're listening to you, they've come this far. What, what kind of are some key lessons that you'd want to leave with them? Sure. I'd say um, give grace and accept it. You will make mistakes, you will fail, you will do things wrong, and it's okay. As long as you learn from that and move forward and are not in a repetitive cycle of that, give yourself grace, give others grace, and move forward. Um, Learn to laugh at yourself because life is too hard to take everything so seriously. The other thing that I would say is be intentional in building and cultivating relationships. Don't burn bridges. The world is small. Be kind to people. Do favors for people because that goodness will come back to you. And the last thing that I would say is do not be afraid to pursue the thing that you're purposed to do, that you're passionate about. Figure out how to monetize it. You may have to work a job you don't love until you get to your purpose, but continue to pursue that in an intentional way. Set goals for yourself, set benchmarks for yourself, and measure to that because what you were destined to do is for you, nobody else. And so if you are not um, a steward, of your own destiny, no one else can be for you. Wow, that was uh, that was very. Well, I'm motivated. I'm, I'm ready to run through the wall right now. Let's go. That was terrific. Seriously, I, I, I very motivational, very uplifting, um, and that was not written down. That was straight from your heart. If you couldn't hear that, let me tell you, I'm, I'm looking at it. It was something that you truly believe. In, oh, I'm feeling it. So, and yeah. uh, it was very real. So. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing us the favor of uh, sharing your stories with, with our audience. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today, Ashley. American Narratives is brought to you by CMP, a minority and women-owned firm, providing solutions across the full talent life cycle, from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com.